Good morning. It's Friday, the 27th of October, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day. Indian stock markets face the worst brunt of Middle East tensions and the strong US treasuries fall again. Post-pandemic sales spikes in durables and consumer products thanks to pent-up demand are now finally fading off. What's next? It's now the turn of onion prices to shoot up. Dal fry diplomacy might work as India ramps up imports of lentils from Canada. AI and ChatGPT are really cool, but they are also very expensive to install. Meta reports record profits and top-line numbers. This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj. The Indian markets fell for the sixth consecutive day on Thursday, even as tensions continue to grip the Middle East and U.S. Treasury yields were edging higher back towards that 5% mark, a figure the whole financial world, and I mean world, is presently transfixed with. In India, the BSE Sensex saw a big dip, falling 901 points or 1.4% to end at 63,148. The NSC's Nifty 50 ended at 18,857, falling 265 points or also 1.4%. I usually don't use percentages for index falls or rises, but this is also to give you a sense on relative terms. To recap, the Nifty 50 has now fallen almost 4% since the beginning of October, which is its worst performance in a month since June 2022. So the US 10-year Treasury bill is already at a 16-year high and was heading back towards that 5% mark on Thursday, dragging shares around the world to multi-month lows, according to Reuters. That's not all. We just said yesterday that while all the economists and researchers were projecting the US economy to slow down, it's actually been doing the opposite. And the figures are bearing that out. The US economy grew at the fastest pace in nearly two years last quarter, fueled by a surge in consumer spending. US GDP accelerated to a 4.9% annualized rate, more than double the second quarter pace, according to the government's preliminary estimate on Thursday. The economy's main growth engine, that's personal spending, jumped 4%, also the most since 2021, according to Bloomberg. Now, the reason I mention all of this is because export-oriented sectors, including, of course, IT services, are closely watching the United States economy to see how things shape up, given that demand has been slowing down, at least in and across some sectors like banking and financial services. However, back home, Indian markets seem to be taking a bigger beating than the rest of the world for the same driving factors, which is war tensions and high US Treasury yields. So why is this happening? I reached out to veteran market analyst Ambarish Balega and I began by asking him why Indian markets were falling more than the rest. If you see the last 24 months to 30 months, it was in fact the retail and liquidity which was driving it and more so in the last seven months. Because if you look at the mid cap and the small cap side of the market, the valuations were getting extremely steep. And normally you see multi-baggers over a much longer period of time. But then the last six, seven months has given us so many multi-baggers. I mean, which clearly showed that something is really wrong with this market. And the levels at which we had reached, at that point of time, you require much higher liquidity and much stronger positive news just to keep the momentum on. And that actually leads to a bubble. So basically, it needed a reason to fall. And we can actually blame it on the US Treasury yield spike we can talk about the Israel-Hamas war widening 
And because of that, the oil prices could go up and there could be a possible supply chain disruption, inflation going up. But the wood point here is that the valuations are getting expensive. And somewhere when it starts falling, you have the retail investors seeing that pain and fear and because of which the liquidity dries up. And now, in the last two, three days, that's exactly what we've been noticing, is that the liquidity from the retail investors has been drying up. And because of which the market falls under its own weight. Right. You talked about the war and the dollar yield and the oil price. The oil price, of course, is actually now, right now as we speak, holding quite steady below $90. Now, the question I have is, at least these two factors, the dollar yield and the oil or the Middle Eastern tensions, are affecting all markets, but we seem to be more affected or have been hit more, at least in the last week or 10 days, than anyone else. Why is that? You see, I mean, that's because we've been doing much better. And when I say we're doing much better, I think we should be looking at the mid-cap and the small-cap side of the market. Like I told you, there were so many multi-baggers, and quite a few of them, we had seen 40, 50, uh, nearly 70, 80% of a move in the last 6-7 months. I mean, this is what we've not seen in years. So, it was getting a bit too expensive. And like I said, it needed like a reason to fall. And I mean, anyone sneezing could have been the reason. But then we have these four or five reasons. And because of which, uh, we, I mean, we are seeing the markets correcting now. So, Ambish, what's your outlook at this point then? I mean, given the technical factors and liquidity that you're now laying more stress on, how is it looking for the next few months and particularly through the festival period, which in general is supposed to be a period of bullishness? Absolutely. I think this time it could be a slightly dull sort of a period for the market. Normally during Diwali, you see the markets going up. But then the sort of losses which most of the retail crowd has made in the last few days, I think quite a few people have lost profits they have made in the last few months. They have lost in the last three, four days. So when this happens, people tend to just sit out or stay out of the market for, I mean, for the time being. And because of which I said the liquidity is drying up. Again, at some point, the markets start looking attractive and that's when the smart money gets in. I'm not saying the retail money, the smart money starts getting in. And my belief is that smart money can possibly get into this market when we see the range of about 18,000 to 18,500, which is not too far from here. But then the smart money getting in at that point of time cannot give a huge bounce for the market. So if you're talking of the next possibly a month and a half, two months, I see the markets settling at lower levels, consolidating there. So you talked about retail investors. So I'm assuming you mean retail investors who are not investing through mutual funds and investing directly or both. I mean, you can say that, but typically it's both because there's the same money which goes into the market as well as through the mutual funds because end of the day, it is the SIPs which is driving the mutual fund. And I mean, typically SIPs don't stop too quickly. Because when you're investing in the secondary market, you can stop overnight. But then typically SIPs, I mean, I call that lazy money. I mean, that does not really stop quickly. But once people start seeing losses building up there, then that's when they start stopping SIPs. But that's like uh, quite a few months away. I mean, unless we see losses over the next eight, nine months, only then the SIP will stop. I mean, I really don't see that happening. If you look at the last few years and this big rush of retail money that we've seen, would you say that this is the first big test for, let's say, resilience or patience for that money or that chunk of money coming from this class of investors, that's retail? Absolutely. Because, I mean, if they are able to weather this fall and hold on 
and possibly come back after two or three months, then I would say that retail crowd has got smarter. But typically, I mean, what we've seen in the past, I just hope is different this time. I mean, what typically we have seen in the past is wherever they, I mean, get hurt badly, they tend to stay out much longer. Right. Ambarish, thank you so much for joining me. Get ready for the post-pandemic consumption reset. Consumption of durables and fast-moving consumer goods is down sharply in most cases from the post-pandemic pent-up demand driven high of 2022. So the question now is, at what point will it settle? Some quick figures which illustrate what exactly was going on in the last couple of years. So, refrigerators, for example, grew at 51% in the five-month period April to August 22, while it was down a negative 2.5% in the same period this year, that's 2023. So remember, when I say it grew 51%, it grew over that period in 2021, which was, of course, the second wave. Now, washing machines similarly grew 40% last year, but were down to 2.7% this year. Mobile phones grew 29% last year, but were at a negative 20% this year. We did speak day before about how many Indians were buying used phones whose sales were going up, even as sales of new phones, particularly smartphones, were dropping. However, the prognosis there from industry experts like CounterPoint Research was that it would pick up when the new technology adoption increased, particularly for phones like IG. But let's come back to consumer products. In very specific consumer products, shampoo, for example, grew 4% last year and was down 18% this year. Soft drinks grew 46% last year and were down 4.8% this year. I know you must be wondering why is shampoo going up and down and why it's linked to pent-up demand. I'm not very clear right now. But let's keep going through the numbers. One category that grew smartly all through, reflecting, of course, a big bump up in consumption was wine which grew 17% last year and 24% this year. Cheers to that. Those spirits overall grew 19% last year and only 1.2% this year. So there was a lot of pent-up drinking that happened last year if going by this data and assuming all this data is broadly accurate. But that pent-up demand, drinking and festivities clearly seem to have cooled off this year down to 1.2%. So now, this is obviously the base effect phenomenon. When numbers are so low in 2021 that the jump in 2022 seemed higher and it was actually higher too because, as we said, pent-up demand. Now the question is, where will consumption levels settle? Lower than the number they should have been accounting for a normal single to double digit growth or higher? Either way, this is the reset in data and real terms many of us have been waiting for in some ways and others have been warning us about. So I reached out to Madan Sabnavis, chief economist and author of this report from Bank of Baroda Research, and I began by asking him why numbers were falling so sharply. So actually what it's telling us is that two things have been happening. One is that there was a pent-up demand phenomenon in 2022, which actually had caused people to keep buying more and more goods. So what we call revenge spending, which is very often referred to just after the pandemic. So that is something which actually saw numbers very good in 2022. And then we have seen that in 23, we don't have the same kind of a pent-up demand because that has actually gotten exhausted. The second part of the story is that we've also seen that inflation has been rising. Now, one is to say that there's been generalized inflation, which means that overall purchasing power has actually come down. The second is for specific products also, we have seen that the inflation numbers have been around 5 to 6% this year. 
So I think a combination of these two factors is something which has manifested in terms of negative growth or very low growth in most of the consumer goods that we're looking at. Right. Is there a way of looking at any absolute numbers, Madan, over, let's say, a slightly longer period? Because I can understand that 22 was a bump up. For example, if I look at refrigerators, it was up 51% compared to, I'm assuming, the previous year, where obviously not much deliveries would have taken place. And 23, it's minus 2.5. But what would have, let's say, been the number in 19 or 1920, which should have been a mostly normal year? See, prior to the pandemic, the kind of growth which we were seeing would broadly be in the range of around 6 to 12%. Okay, so if you're talking of a whole range of commodities, where some of them, of course, have seasonal effects which are there. So if you're talking of something like refrigerators or air conditioners, it would tend to be higher just before the summer season and not in the post-summer season or in the winter months. So on an average, if we look at something like 6 to 12% growth is what we would see across the range of uh, industries. And I would tend to think that if you look at the overall growth in consumption, okay, consumption as such, has been in the region of around 10 to 12% in nominal terms for the entire economy. So typically, a consumer goods should be growing in the region of around 8 to 10%. So if I look at any particular category, we should be seeing sustained growth of around 8 to 10%. Assuming that the economy also keeps moving on this trajectory of around 8% growth, we may not see this in next year also, but probably as and when it really settled out to that. But that has been the trend in growth rate for quite some time in the early part of the last decade. So if you're going to talk of an 8% growth, we could actually be thinking of a similar kind of growth also in these consumer goods items. Any sense of absolute numbers for any of these categories, Madan? Yeah, absolute numbers will be difficult because one, we should remember that what we're looking at is based on the CSO data, which is only the organized sector, which is there. There's a large amount of unorganized sector numbers also which are there, especially when you're talking of your consumer durable goods. In fact, I would say even for your FMCG products, what we have seen is that there are lots of localized brands which actually do greater business than what we're talking of the organized sector. So organizers, what is reported, that these are the numbers of the larger companies which get reported, and that is what we are really talking of out here. But on the whole, it will be a bit difficult to put because even if you look at the way in which lots of the reporting takes place, some of them could be in terms of numbers, some go in terms of tonnage and some other things go purely in terms of value. So it becomes a bit difficult to put a number to it. Right. So I recall mobile phones specifically, Madan, because I was looking at the numbers. I think the peak mobile phone sales last year, I think, was about 167 smartphones, million. And it's now down to about 143 million for this year. And the figure is really lower, if I remember correctly, than what it was before the peak. And smartphone sales overall don't seem to have grown much. But let me use another example from your FMCG chart. Groundnut oil, for example, was down 30% in 21-22, that's April to August, and is down 55% in April to August 23. So is that an aberration or? I would tend to think it's an aberration because we've had lower production levels last year. So I think that is something that happened. And even in this year, if you've seen actually the production of groundnuts per se is going to be lower than last year. So I think that kind of a trend would probably continue. But just to touch upon the point which you raised earlier of, say, mobile phones, I think what we have seen is that a lot of the demand now actually is going to emanate from the replacement category. Because if you look at it, almost every individual now on an average basis would be owning a phone. So the future growth, I think whatever kind of economies were there in terms of that exponential growth which we saw in the past is not something going to be replicated. Now what's going to happen is that there are going to be new products coming in, new features, maybe higher value phones. 
So therefore, incrementally, to my mind, the growth is going to remain subdued. And that is also coming out when you're looking at the overall production. If you look at the IAP numbers also for electronic equipment, which also includes mobile phones, it's actually been negative. Similarly, if you're looking in terms of our import of electronics on the trade side, even that has been coming down. So I think it's a combination of all these factors. And now that we are saying that the government is going to put some kind of restrictions on import of mobile parts, components which are coming in. So I think it's going to be a low growth phenomenon for this particular sector. Right. Last question, Madan. So as you look at these numbers today and maybe ahead for the next six months, what do you feel? Where is the economy really at right now in terms of personal consumption at this point and going? No, I think it's a very critical point because I think all the numerical or the statistical advantages which we had last year have actually gotten diluted what's more or less behind us, which means that we need to see real spending coming back. I think that's one of the reasons why this particular season is going to be a very important one, critical one, both from the point of view of urban as well as rural demand. I think rural demand, as we've been talking about the last three, four years, hasn't really quite materialized because there has been a lot of reverse migration which took place post-pandemic. So that has actually created more people in the rural areas, fixed amount of fixed income. So therefore, the purchasing power also come down. So if you look at the future growth of the economy, it's going to be driven mainly by consumption. It's going to be supplemented by investment because investment is going to trail consumption. If consumption does well, investment will also do well. So all I can say is that we'll have to keep our fingers crossed and hope that consumption does revive both at the urban and rural levels. Even in the urban, what we have seen is that premium products have been doing better than the regular products. There has been a bit of downtrading, which have been, lots of companies have been talking of. So whether it is a reversal this year, it's going to be a slow reversal is what I feel because inflation factor has played very hard. Because if I look at the last two and a half years, three and a half years rather, we have seen cumulative inflation of almost 25%, which means 100 rupees of income actually will get you 75 rupees of consumption today if I look at cumulative inflation. So it's going to be a tough thing. And we've also seen savings coming down in the past. Now savings are once again reviving. So households are going to be more cognizant of the fact that they need to build up their savings. So they may not be that extravagant this year. So I think we'll have to wait and watch. I think there will be a slow turnaround, not a very drastic one. The inflation which you're saying is aggregate about 25% in the last three years is obviously constraining people from an income point of view and it's also causing prices to go up. So given all of that, how much do you feel is inflation the larger cause or of the kind of numbers that we're seeing here versus, let's say, the pent-up demand argument? No, I think inflation today is the larger cause because I think when we had the pent-up demand phenomenon, prices really did not matter. Because when I say 25% cumulative inflation in three and a half years, we've been averaging around 6% in the last three years, and we are again close to that level of 5.5 this year. But that did not really come in the way of consumption, because I think when people were denied consumption in 2020 and 21, so people did come out to consume both goods as well as services. But at some point of time, you realize that you were financing it more from your savings. So that's what the data shows last year, that savings have actually come down. And now when we come back to an equilibrium position, I think people will be a bit more uh, discreet when it comes to spending. And this is where you see inflation hurts. And I think that's one of the reasons as to why the Reserve Bank of India has been harping a lot on inflation, sounding very, very dovish. And this is not just an Indian phenomenon that's there all across the world. Central banks are worried about inflation because it actually does finally hit demand. And we are already seeing it in India. Madan, thank you so much for joining me. And it's now time for onion prices to jump. 
Prices of some vegetables are running away again, just as we thought everything was coming under control, including the action of slapping high export duties, in this case, on onions. Average wholesale price of onions at the benchmark Lassal Gaon APMC, that's the Agricultural Product Marketing Committee in Maharashtra, have jumped close to 60% in the last fortnight, rising 18% in the last one week, according to the Economic Times. The maximum price for the best quality onion touched 50 rupees a kilogram in Delhi on Wednesday, as well as in some markets of Maharashtra. And they are expected to continue to rise till December when the new Kharif crop is expected to hit markets after a delay of nearly two months. Rising onion prices, traditionally, as stories go or folklore almost goes, are not good for incumbent governments. The average price of onions in Ahmednagar has increased from about 35 kilo to about 45 rupees per kilo in 10 days, the head of the Association of Onion Traders of Ahmednagar District told the Economic Times. Now, the government has imposed a duty of 40% on the export of onions on August 25th when prices started rising due to delayed and lower sowing of the Kharif crop. The fact is that prices are shooting up now almost more than a month later. So nothing much actually happened at the time when that duty was slapped. So it is quite likely that exporters have invoiced onions at lower prices and thus not losing out at the international market, which means they're marking down the prices and even after that 40% export duty, it still matches import prices of other countries or the export price in the market or the global market. So the same thing happened with Basmati rice, forcing the government to set a floor price for exports, which the rice exporters are now saying is too high. That's more than $1,200 per tonne. So the larger issue seems to be price signaling caused by constraining supply or flows, in this case by tightening of exports. Whether in rice or onion, it does not seem to be working exactly the way it's intended to, at least as a policy measure. But this is something that deserves much deeper study and debate. From onions to dal and dal fry diplomacy. India has been receiving steady supplies of lentils from its top supplier Canada, helping increase imports in the first 10 months of 2023, a senior government official told Reuters on Thursday. India imported about a million tons of lentils, including 463,000 tons from Canada from Jan to October, according to that official. Now, Canada is India's main import source of lentils, a protein-rich staple used to make dal curry. Canada was the biggest suppliers of lentils to India in the last financial year, accounting for more than half of India's total lentil imports, according to Reuters. Indian buyers slowed purchases last month after ties between India and Canada deteriorated after the two expelled each other's diplomats following the murder of a man wanted as a terrorist in India in Canada in June. Now, India has started, it will start issuing some visas like business visas to Canadians wanting to visit India. Visas were suspended earlier. Now, the reverse is what people will watch out for, given that some 41 Canadian consular officials and diplomats who would process visas for students and others have left the house or the country. India consumes around 2.4 million tons of lentils every year, but local production only produces about 1.6. Hopefully, some good dal fry, possibly with rice and rotis, will bring matters back to even keel. Facebook parent Meta reports a solid top and bottom line. Meta Platforms reported its largest quarterly revenue since going public more than a decade ago as demand for advertising picked up and the company continued to reap the benefits of cutting costs and developing new AI technology, according to the Wall Street Journal. 
Meta sales increased to $34 billion, up more than 23% compared with a year ago. This also apparently represents Meta's third quarter in a row of rising revenue after Meta saw its business shrink for most of 2022. And this 23% increase is Meta's largest year-to-year growth in revenue since the third quarter of 2021. Now, what do we know about Meta? Well, advertising represents almost 98.5% of Meta's revenue in the quarter. The company's ad revenue rose to $33.6 billion, though ad prices fell year-on-year. Meta said Facebook's daily active user base increased to 2.09 billion users. I repeat, 2.09 billion users, up from 2.06 billion the previous quarter. The company's fortunes have begun to turn around during what Chief Executive Mark Zuckerberg has called a year of efficiency. Investors, in turn, apparently have been encouraged by the improvements of the company's ad-targeting capabilities and advancements in artificial intelligence. AI is cool but also expensive. Tech companies are touting new AI technology that can spit out business memos or computer code. However, they're still figuring out how those products will generate a profit, according to the Wall Street Journal. Generative artificial intelligence tools are unproven and expensive to operate, requiring muscular servers with expensive chips that consume lots of power, says the Wall Street Journal. Moreover, Microsoft has lost money on one of its first generative AI products, someone knowing or with knowledge of the figures, told the Wall Street Journal. So Microsoft and Google are now launching AI-backed upgrades to their software with higher price tags. Zoom, remember them, has tried to mitigate costs by sometimes using a simpler AI developed in-house. Adobe and others are apparently putting caps on monthly usage and charging based on consumption. Adam Silipsky, the chief executive of Amazon.com's cloud division, told the Wall Street Journal that a lot of the customers he's talked to are unhappy about the cost that they are seeing for running some of these models. It will take some time for companies and consumers to understand how they want to use AI and what they are willing to pay for it, Microsoft's head of corporate strategy, Chris Young, told the Wall Street Journal. We are clearly at a place where we've now got to translate the excitement and the interest level into true adoption, he told the Wall Street Journal. And of course, I would add, pay a lot of money for it as well. So get ready. Goodbye to the lightning. Apple AirPods will phase out lightning jacks and bring in USB-C. As you know, everyone seems to track and wants to know when Apple will get rid of that pretty painful lightning jack, usually preventing other people from charging your phone or allowing your charger to be used for other phones in the Android ecosystem. Finally, you might say, because the iPhone 15 already has a USB-C. However, this will only happen later next year as Apple gets set to phase out both the second generation and third generation AirPods, according to sources who told Bloomberg. They will be replaced with two fourth generation AirPods that are priced similarly to the current versions but are more differentiated. Apple will differentiate the two options by including noise cancellation in the higher end version and it will also get, most importantly, an updated charging case that includes speakers for Find My Alerts matching the current AirPods Pro. And most importantly, USB-C. That's all I have for today. But before I go, do catch Tushar Jani, veteran logistics entrepreneur and founder of Bluetart, the courier company that was acquired by DHL, on where India is on the logistics journey and some very interesting news that is coming from that space. On that note, wish you a great weekend. 
This was the core report with me, Govind Raj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.